0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to 2018 and welcome back to Slate Money and welcome to the distinctly Nordic edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the very first week of 2018. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion. I'm here with Anna Shemansky and Jordan Weissman. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. And we are on a big global tour. I'm just off a big global tour. I had a 42-hour flight from Hong Kong straight to Brooklyn Metro Tech, which was amazing. Um... But we are not going to talk about Hong Kong or New Zealand. We're going to talk about Iran. We're going to talk about Sweden's greatest musical export, which is not Max Martin. It's Spotify, um, which is doing amazingly, (laughs) amazingly interesting things on the stock market. So if you're a finance nerd and you think... Max Martin or Abbott or something like that is cool. Just wait till you hear what Spotify is up to. Um, But we are going to start with, Anna, Iceland. 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 Because there's a law?
2: A law that's now taking effect.
0: Okay. So walk us through it. Right.
2: So Iceland now has a law that mandates that companies certify that they are paying men and women the same.
0: And they need to get an outside auditor in to sort of tick the box and say, yep, we've looked at how much the men get paid and how much the women get paid, and the men are not making any more than the women.
2: Right. And unlike most other laws where the burden of proof is on the woman or the individual, it's now actually on the company.
0: And what happens if they don't get this certification? There's
2: actually a daily fine. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Wow. Daily fines can stack up.
2: <laughs> Icelanders, they're serious. Yeah, they
3: are not but, I mean, fucking the good, around. The
0: good news about this is that you really can fix it overnight. You just take all of the women and you pay them a bit more, and then it's fixed. So you <laughs> you you can do that in the gender course of equality
1: a, done. <laughs> you
0: can do that in the course of a couple of days. It's not something which like takes a long time. Theoretically,
3: yeah. I, I think it's a little bit more complicated mm-hmm. than that. The The rule is this thing called the gender equity or gender equality standard, pay equity standard. I'm blanking at the moment. But anyway, it's supposed to sort of be a system that you have in place for making sure your jobs are paid fairly and that essentially people are paid based on what their job is rather than who they are or their ability to negotiate per se. Um, so I don't think it's as simple as just like, okay, we just, you know, make sure that right. – um, I'm actually not really coming up with a good Icelandic name right now. I was going to try and like name a random Icelandic York uh, worker, but all I'm thinking of is
0: Bjork, and that's really not
3: <laughs> going to uh, fit here. But who's, who's anyway. probably
0: the highest pace, highest paid Icelander in the world? I I have to assume most likely. Yeah, she, Ziggy. If Ziggy was a,
3: she's definitely their best export right now. Talking about Swedish exports, Icelandic exports definitely Bjork.
0: But so anyway, but I guess what my point was mm-hmm. is is that like however difficult it is to measure this. Yeah. Once it's been measured, if your independent external auditor accountant person says, you know, these women are earning 5% less than their male peers, the way you fix it is by giving giving them a 5% pay rise, and then it's fixed.
2: Maybe. This could get somewhat complicated. And this is why I really want to like this, and I'm happy that people are trying these kinds of things, but I think this could have the potential maybe to actually depress wages for everyone. If you make it incredibly complicated to give pay raises, because essentially you have to assign a value to every task.
0: But wait, isn't this like the great advantage of being a small open economy like Iceland is that... Everyone gets a pay cut. Then no one gets a pay cut because everything is relative. And so it's just. Oh,
3: like, OK, you know, we can we can talk about we can talk about exchange rate <laughs> fluctuations right. to deal with this. But and I want to hear you finish your point, because I think you were going somewhere interesting with that. And then- So
2: what I'm saying is most companies, if you're say someone seems to be adding value in their job and you potentially want, normally want to reward them with a pay raise. Well, now, in order to do that, A, it's going to involve a tremendous amount of paperwork. And also, you then potentially are going to be having to give a pay raise to many, many people. And I think that could make a lot of employers very loath to raise people's salaries and give them away do not raise people's salaries. People come to them and they say, "Well, I would like to increase your salary, but I we can't actually afford it because it's this much bigger expense." So but-
0: I so I'm not sure I I really follow this. I think there there are two different issues here. One is that there is a fixed sort of bureaucratic overhead cost of documenting the Extra performance of the people who get paid more, and of measuring whether or not the men and women are being paid the same amount, and that kind of stuff, and that's the kind of dead weight lost to the company, which could otherwise have been spent on wages. And so, I'll grant you that half. Mm-hmm. The other half of anytime time you want to give someone a raise, you then need to give everyone a raise. I'm not so convinced about.
3: Well, if so, there there's supposedly some headroom in this stand in this new law that you can raise wages for people who add extra value to their job somehow there's supposed to be a little bit of of space to do that that said it's difficult i think right. is the idea it's meant to be difficult and so the question is how how often are companies really going to be able to do that and if they are really easily able to then just kind of give Big performers a, a a raise does that undermine the whole point of the thing? I mean, I think there it's an well, open I mean, question.
0: It's only difficult if the big performer is a man, right?
3: That's true. Yes,
0: <laughs> that's right.
3: But, but that's part of the problem in Iceland right now is that uh, men tend to be in higher paying industries and in higher paying jobs within those industries. They tend Not to be just
0: Iceland. Yeah, all over. Like yeah,
3: exactly. But so that that's part of the issue they're trying to solve. The flip side is that some companies might look at their pay situation and decide, oh, we actually need to bring in more women into these higher paid positions just to move, kind mm-hmm. of even things out. And some companies that actually adopted the standard voluntarily and sort of a, a trial run over the last few years have started doing that, apparently. There's there's some, the Times wrote about this, that mm-hmm. some companies took these audits as an opportunity to kind of assess things and say, okay, how can we make ourselves better? So I think that might be the best case situation.
2: Agree, and I really do hope this works. And I yeah.
0: could so also how, potentially- So what's so, your criteria for whether or not it works?
2: whether it actually reduces the pay gap without causing stagnated wages.
3: I, I think I think that's a good standard, and I think there's also one other risk that you haven't even brought up um, for why this could push down wages a bit, even though I am generally optimistic about this, um, which is that if you have to justify what a position is paid based on each and every single task, and then you're just kind of given a little bit of headroom to... Um, to pay high performers more, you're probably going. That's probably going to bias your initial wage down. Yeah. You're going to say, "Okay, I have to decide what my salary
0: is for this job ahead of time." Um, and I see again. I, know- I feel like this is a straw man. I don't think that anyone is asking or requiring that. Wages need to be set a court, like disaggregated and broken up into component tasks or that no, or no that, that quite are, literally no, is quite what literal. is what they're doing in this. yeah that's
3: part of it that's the system that that's all that's all part of the system but
0: no but the point is so long as you're paying the men and women doing the same jobs the same amount, all of that is moot the only question the only way that that starts coming in. Is when men start getting paid more than women, and you try and justify that as saying, well, because they're doing this task and that task and those are higher value tasks, therefore we can pay them more. If you don't if you don't pay them more, then you don't need to disaggregate. So
3: I'm actually not sure about that. I think that's probably going to I'm guessing that'll actually come up as a question as they try to implement mm-hmm. this thing because it is it's not just supposed to be looking at like, a number it's it's supposed to be looking at your pay structure so and how you go about it it's so I, I i i think that a company might make the argument you are currently making felix and it'll be interesting to see if and, it, and the government and i that. think
0: the big the big question for me to just respond to anna and say well you know does it bring pay into parity without depressing wages is like the second half of that is how do you measure the counterfactual? How do you measure whether or not it you know, depressed wages? How do you know what wages would have been if you hadn't implemented this law? And that's the bit which I feel like no one's ever going to be super happy with. True,
2: I- although right now if you actually look at how the wage gap has closed in the US, it's mostly because of men's wages stagnating, not actually because of women's. Right. So, Social scientists are already doing some of that work, so I think moving forward, they could also do that work in another way. It's not an easy metric because it's obviously based on estimates.
0: But yeah, I, I think we can. I think we can say that if parity comes about by men's wages falling to the level of women's wages, that is less attractive of an outcome than if parity comes about by women's raised wages rising to the level of men's wages
3: yes yes i agree i also i should say i am a fan of this i'm really happy that iceland is taking it upon themselves to try this experiment like it's like small you know small quirky country that they are i i i want to see the results of this and if there's any way if, if there's an inkling that this worked and did not cause wages to Fall or to kind of stagnate, um, I, it could be something that a American state could try at some point. Completely I,
2: agree, and actually, I believe Minnesota in their public sector is already doing something like this, and oh, it has really? actually yes, and it has actually been fairly successful. I, I did not know so. that.
0: I want to check that so, out. And public sector wages are wonderful in a bunch of different ways, like in, in terms of. Price and transparency. Everyone knows what everyone else is being paid, mm-hmm. and in a system where everyone knows what everyone else is being paid, it's much easier to get price parity uh, to to get pay parity because you can't. There's nowhere to hide.
2: Yeah, yeah and yeah. I yeah, and I agree, and I <laughs> and yes. I think that's why I could certainly see something like this working even in the U.S. in the public sector where you already have pretty rigid pay structures. Well, I was going to say that's the other. Key thing to realize about this, which is
3: that Iceland is heavily unionized. I saw it's like union penetration is like eighty-five percent or something. It's it's nuts, um, even by Nordic standards. But that they are already used to having highly regulated, high, very very restricted uh, wage structures. So this kind of maps onto that. Whereas in a place like the U.S., outside the public sector, it's just not um, just not what we're used to culturally. So it's it is something that may be distinctly Nordic.
2: subject to credit approval terms apply
0: Did you say distinctly nordic <laughs> Distinctly nordic
3: that's actually my new brand of seltzer of sparkling water I'm going to be selling uh, because I because nordic.
0: I feel I feel distinctly nordic could be a wonderful segue Mr. Weizmann, <laughs> into Spotify yes. Spotify Now Spotify is the future of music it has single-handedly revolutionized the entire music industry and turned it from a withering husk of its former self into something which people are quite excited about and um is a Thriving multi-billion-dollar global media. Thriving, thriving. I don't know if that's the <laughs> word. i looked at some of their financial that have leaked out. Well, no, no, no. <laughs> the music industry. Okay. Oh. okay. So this okay. is this is what. Yes. This is what I love about. One of the things I love about Spotify is that even if Spotify, after having lost money for however long it's been in ex- existence, continues to lose money for another few decades, in doing so, it will have enabled billions and billions of dollars to go to artists and songwriters which would not otherwise have gone to those artists and songwriters and for this industry to grow up around it and we are about to find out what the market valuation of spotify is and jordan no actually i don't want jordan to explain i'm so befuddled by this one Anna. how are we going because the way we are going to find out what the market valuation of spotify is is just the most beautiful thing that anyone is going to see in 2018
2: yes the direct listing oh on my god the
0: New York York stock exchange the, the, it, it's words to make my heart flutter <laughs> it's, the, it's the i love direct listings so much it's the
3: non-ipo ipo PO, yes. it's a fake ipo but it, it's a real it's ipo not the fake, it's, I, it's a what the hell is this thing so yes,
0: yes. okay and so there's this idea out there that public, that the private is the new public, that basically, if you want to raise equity capital in these weird times that we live in, the best way to do that is not to go out into the stock market and ask the public to buy shares. And it is rather to go around to a bunch of venture capitalists and ask them to buy shares. And that seems to be a lot easier and a and lot more effective in a bunch of different ways. And you don't need to go through the Crap of going public. And so that's what people do. And so half of the reason why companies that went public in the first place, which is to raise money, has now kind of disappeared. They don't need to raise money on the public markets anymore. Um, On the other hand, once you've raised money, those shareholders really like the idea of at some point being able to sell their shares. And so at some point, you need a stock market listing to allow people to sell their shares. So, how do you get a stock market listing? Without ever raising any money on the stock market, and this Anna explain, like is what...
2: going to be a direct listing. Where in a normal IPO, you go through an investment bank; they're your underwriters. They buy your shares, they sell them to institutions. They well, they sell them to ins- institutional investors at a price that they have determined using many, many spreadsheets, and and then at that point, the shares are traded on the market.
0: And the idea is that normally, if everything goes according to plan, the first at the end of the first day's trading, the shares will be maybe 10% higher than the IPO price, which you can think of as being money left on the table, or you can think of as a bunch of different things. But the idea is that the end of the first day's trading will give you an actual market valuation of the company. That's the market cap.
2: this is actually important because, and I think this will be something that we, we may all somewhat agree, agree on, is that the current structure of the IPO essentially is made not really for the benefit of the companies, but for the benefit of strengthening relationships between investment banks and institutional investors because of the way IPO pricing works.
0: Right. And and Goldman Sachs and Credit Suisse and Deutsche Bank and all of these big banks will you know, have big Desks devoted to allocating equities and, and getting and buttering up clients by giving them access to IPOs and then the clients will make money on the first day. But Spotify is just doing an end run around all of this. It's eschewing
3: all of that.
0: Yes. So although it is still having investment banks involved because you still want the institutional investors to want to buy the stock. Right. But. Instead of doing it in an IPO process where the company is raising money and issuing new stock, the company has already issued new stock. They did a big um, transaction with Tencent. They have billions of dollars in the bank. They don't need more capital, certainly not in any rush to raise more capital. So what they're doing is they're just saying, okay, everyone who owns stock, you know, it doesn't matter when you bought it. You could have bought it yesterday or you could have been given it, you know, 10 years ago when we were founded you're free to sell it on the stock market and anyone who wants to buy stock on the stock market you're free to buy it and you guys just go out there and have a market on the New York Stock Exchange and we'll see where the we'll see
2: where
3: it lies we'll
0: see, we'll see where it ends so
3: how like how do you determine the hell the price is
0: going to be on day 1 just just like the same way that you determine the price on day 1 in an IPO you have a you have buyers and you have sellers and you see where the Clearing it. Okay, so there's yeah, like... and
2: there's actually is in order to be able to do a direct listing on the New York Stock Exchange, they have a, a rule that you have to prove that your market value is above a certain amount by a third party stating that. So I I imagine that that also somewhat factors yeah, in.
0: People aren't going to be doing direct listings for small companies. This, no, it has this, this to be this is over, for like billion dollar companies. Two hundred
3: and fifty million is the. So I like this this insight though, and essentially the. W- People are realizing that IPOs are about buttering up institutional investors. It's more for Goldman Sachs and their clients than it is yeah, for Spotify. Yeah, I mean, people realized that, that a long time okay, ago, but, but
0: that wasn't. The impetus to do the direct list. No, well,
3: so I was going to say, how? So aside from that, is the the other impetus just like we don't want to dilute the people who already have <laughs> shares, or what? What are the other reasons
2: well, to do this? M- mainly, also to allow people to cash out. Okay, yeah, but I mean, so people ca- can cash out if well, you do that's any a- kind of no, well, right. Not no, but there's a lockup there's, period. Yeah, the lock-up oh, period. okay. It's a hundred eighty day lockup period. So if you were a current holder, you you could not sell. Oh, and then
0: okay. the, and then I the see. other thing beyond that is simply that. When you have an investment bank, they take a gazillion dollars in fees. There's this seven percent underwriting fee, and no one understands how banks get away with that. But they the always do, spread. and so they they make an enormous amount of money in fees for work which doesn't seem to be particularly onerous or necessary. And, and so <laughs> it is onerous, <laughs> but it's not that onerous. Oh. I Wait. mean compared to Wait, compared to like bond underwriting. I'll tell
2: you, I mean I am not I've did not work, I've never worked in investment banking, but many many of my friends have. I'm just saying that lots and lots of hours making lots and lots of decks, it is not easy work. It's no, no, a- I'm
0: not saying it's easy, but look at the difference between equity underwriting and bond underwriting, right? Where equity underwriting you're making 7% and bond underwriting you're making 7 basis points. It's literally a hundredfold difference.
3: It is equity underwriting does that involve a lot more like salesmanship and convincing people to buy stuff is there is there a is there a, a difference in the amount of labor that goes yeah, i mean into it's, it? it's probably more but is there a hundred times more right though.
2: it's yeah i agree
0: and that i'll agree with
3: so by doing this they're saving themselves a bunch of money uh and they're allowing their current shareholders or investors to cash out a lot quicker
0: and there's another wonderful bit of this as well which i just really love is that they're doing an end run around the whole narrative of the first day's trading. Yeah. So when you IPO the whole financial press really cares for reasons which I've never entirely understood whether you rise on the first day or fall on the first day from your IPO price, how much you rise, how much you fall. They want to see the pop. Yes. And or, or you know or they it goes like that's the narrative. And um and if there is no IPO price then you can't have that narrative you can't say the stock went up is you know closed eight percent higher than the ipo price when there's no ipo price to close higher than and so this I, in fact i read this piece about the spotify listing saying people have been reluctant to go this route because they thought that without an underwriter there would be um nothing to prevent the stock from falling on the first date it's like falling from what there's no baseline it's beautiful. I love it. Well, this is very lit theory. It's like yes.
3: Spotify is problematizing the narrative yes, of the first day of trading. Spotify is the Foucault. I, 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 love,
2: I love this. Wait, so you're saying that? So look, I, I do actually think this is interesting. I think this will be a very interesting experiment to see a company of this size doing this, but it's not without some
0: risk. Okay, what's the risk?
2: So if you already know that part of the reason you're setting this up is because you have a lot of people who potentially want to cash out want to sell you also don't have an underwriter you know with a you know green shoe option that can support the price of the of the stock there's a strong potential that that stock could really Decline. At, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying in terms of declining from where, but there's a point it's going to start at and a point at the end of the day it's going to end at. So you
0: mean like literally an intraday move, like the, the the price at the end of the day would be lower than the price at the beginning of the
2: right, day. Right, which that in itself, I agree with you that for one day, like, is that a huge deal? Even potentially for a few weeks, is that who knows? But if you start out and there's just a lot of negative press about how much this stock is declining
0: so you're again you're you're literally just talking about the the stock chart of like what is the price of that stock doing over the, per, well, fir, uh, the first uh, few what, days
2: well, uh, well i want to and, say and, what,
3: what are you concerned about that i want, I want uh, to uh, your I, concerns, again i'm not yeah. saying
2: i'm not i'm probably not as concerned as others might be about this but as a company that wants to list partly because people are own shares and they want to be able to sell those shares, if the price of that share or the value of that share appears to be declining, those people who own those shares aren't going to be very happy. Okay,
0: I can't see this. I really can't see this because f- there, there are two different things going on here. One is the thing you really care about if you own the shares is how much your shares are worth. Um, is the is the level not the direction? Mm-hmm. I'm much I'm much happier with shares which have fallen from forty five dollars to forty dollars than I am with shares which have risen from twenty dollars to twenty five dollars. If I have like X shares, right? All I want is a higher share price, and so again, like because you don't have that IPO price as a kind of base point. You don't really know what's high or low, but you can see what the valuation of the company is. And if the company comes out at a twenty billion dollar valuation, you're like, "Oh my god!" You know, I have shares in this twenty billion dollar company, and that makes me so.
3: I-, I wonder if there, at least in the early going, the fact that there's no lockup period that everyone's f- just kind of free to sell immediately could lead to, uh, kind of create a stampede to the bottom. I mean, right, probably then, not. Though people are going to hold on to their shares. You know, for a while. People,
0: yeah, that's the whole point. People aren't going to sell shares at a price they think is unfair. And I think this is this is the real key, right? is that actually what we have seen in a whole bunch of recent IPOs is that the VCs who funded that company did not cash out. And that they kept hold of their stakes for months and sometimes years after the IPO. And what the VCs are going to do in the case of Spotify is exactly the same thing. They know exactly what valuation they want to get for their shares. And they are perfectly happy to wait for Spotify to reach that valuation. And if the valuation is not high enough on the market, they won't sell. And similarly for employees, you know, if they can get rich by selling shares, they'll, they'll sell shares. If the price is so low that they aren't interested in selling, they won't sell shares. That is how markets work. And I think the idea that like, the method by which you go public is going to make a substantial difference to the actual share price or to the direction of the shares. I I don't see it. And plus, I don't think the direction of shares actually matters that much. But what we have seen in, you know, very big cases like Google and Facebook is that if you have a kind of sluggish, crappy open to the stock, it doesn't matter. And that you know, the, 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 the early shareholders and the employees just hold on to their stock, and then eventually it goes up, and then they sell.
2: I don't entirely disagree. But I also think it's important to remember, like in the case of a, a Facebook, where initially part of the support for the stock was coming from the investment bankers. For like
0: one and a half days.
2: Yeah, but the other thing I do think it's important to remember is that part of the underwriting process is also – connecting the company with these institutional investors, solidifying relationships. And there is also a concern if you're not really engaging in that process, if you're going to have the same relationship with your investors, with large institutional investors who are more likely to hold long term.
0: Yeah, we'll see whether there's a roadshow, how big it is, but I suspect there will be one. I suspect the bankers will get paid to take Spotify on the road. The big institutional investors will be entirely familiar with it. On top of that, there's going to be a large retail base of people who love the story. I, you know, we can have a whole separate conversation about whether there's a, you know, whether the story is genuinely attractive or whether all of the rents will go to the Mm -hmm. music publishers. But the, I don't think the problem is going to be, oh, there was never enough of a, Big IPO, so people never heard of Spotify. Like that's not going to be a problem. No,
2: I'm not talking about that. I'm more talking about having relationships with these investors who are your initial investors who are buying big chunks. And when you're not going you through this don't process, need
0: big chunks though, because that's the whole beauty of this. You have long-term investors who have big chunks. They are the people who did your ABCD VC rounds, and they will or won't want to. Be selling, and so the fact is that the f- that the only problem I really see with this is that the free float could be much lower yep. than in most companies, and which is kind of the opposite problem to what you're talking about. That there are going to be many fewer shares actively trading hands on the market because there isn't going to be a big clump of shares being issued by the company in the first place, and because there are fewer shares being traded in the market, that might make the price artificially high. It could go either direction. It could though. go either way.
3: I still am just yeah. I, I I'm still curious when Spotify is ever going to make money. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Chances almost never. Yeah,
3: I I, I yeah. still think of this as a company that would just be better off owned as like a cooperative by all the music uh, publishers and and labels. But that's another thing. That's, that's yeah, a story would, for another why, day.
0: Why if they're making money off it, why would they want to have? Why would they want to like subsidize a money losing company? Anyway, yes, we will talk about the business of Spotify some probably when it ipos probably um when it fake ipos But let's, let's talk about Iran. Yes. Yes, um, because there are riots in the streets. Yes. And the riots in the streets are a function of the fact that it has a shitty economy. Oh, well,
2: it has a less shitty economy than it used to. So why are there riots still in the shitty.
0: streets? <laughs>
2: <It's> still
0: pretty
3: <laughs> shitty. Still pretty shitty. This is the wisdom you come to Slate Money for, our listeners. This.
0: I mean, I feel like this is, I mean, we've seen a few riots in the streets in Iran over the past, few decades and these are the first ones which are explicitly we are rioting because the economy is shitty riots
2: well i do think it's important to remember that these protests although very important um they're not anywhere close so far to what we saw in 2009 They're there's much smaller in scale and you also aren't involving as much of the um kind of educated middle class at this point.
0: Because the educated middle class are are not the people who are really being shafted by the No, that's not entirely true. So
2: part of the reason that Hassan Rouhani was able to be elected and then re-elected as president of Iran was because he was promising economic reforms that would better the, at the time, very, very shitty economy of Iran. And if you actually look at numbers in terms of inflation has come down significantly, they've moved out of recession but the problem is that he's trying to undo decades of endemic corruption, bad populist policies, and at the same time, the he's also working within a system where Khamenei has more power than he does. So his degrees of freedom of what he can do are right. limited.
0: So I feel like there are two big problems facing Rouhani or anyone wanting to do economic reforms in Iran. One is the mullahs call it, basically the it, the the religious state and I can't remember, some massive percentage of the Iranian economy is controlled by people who just don't pay tax at all. Yeah, it's so, a
2: third of the economy <clears throat> is controlled by the Revolutionary
0: Guard. And and so and so there's the, just like this massive sort of weirdly religious tax exempt part of the economy, which is a which is quite petro based in in many ways and and is untouchable and and just skews everything and then the other part of it is the you know wonderful deal which John Kerry managed to finally sign and everyone got excited about was meant to unleash a whole bunch of foreign investment and then you know Trump happened and so now there's a like the foreign investment has not materialized, no one really wants to invest in Iran, and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a little, I agree with you to the most, to the, I agree with you mostly, it's a little bit more complicated in terms of why we haven't quite seen the investment in, in Iran that was being promised. So part of it, yes, is that there was a lot of uncertainty once the election started moving. Part of it also has to do that when sanctions were lifted, U.S. and foreign banks were still forbidden from, doing any type of U.S. dollar payments with Iran. And the vast majority of international trade is in U.S. dollars. That That was a big problem that they probably should have thought of beforehand. So that was one thing. And later they were able to kind of amend that a little bit. But at that point, Trump happened. So that is one major issue. Agreed. But I also think what we're seeing in Iran is also something that we frequently see when you have a reformer come in, when you have someone who's trying to liberalize the economy. They have to engage in measures that are not popular. They have to reduce subsidies. They have to increase fuel prices. They have to increase taxation. They have to privatize things. They have to sell assets because they need a functioning economy that foreigners will invest in. Those types of actions are not popular, although they are usually necessary. Now,
0: But they're also kind of, I think in Iran's case, impossible on a bunch of different levels, not least that it's really hard to think of many foreigners who particularly want to invest in Iran.
2: I don't know if that's entirely true. If Iran could really, this is part of the problem, Iran's infrastructure is just completely shot. And that's part of the problem. They're both their actual like physical infrastructure roads and bridges, also their payment systems, their energy sector, everything. They they need a lot of work. And that's part of the reason that they need a stronger budget. So agreed that part of the the way that they need to get foreign investment in is to build the infrastructure. Exactly. Now, so this is part of the reason that they are trying to push forward these reforms now.
0: So wait, I mean, but again, like, is that investment? Because it seems to me that if you get in some huge European construction agency to revamp the oils pipes and build new roads and put in a payment system and do all of that, that's actually you're you're paying those people. That's like the opposite of investment. Depends no, to, I mean, if, no, I if you have, the money, comes yeah, from, yeah, yeah, no,
2: that actually, if we were seeing that, that would be that would be great for Ron. We're not seeing that partly right
0: because they don't have the money to do it.
2: Right, and and that's part of what I'm trying to say is that when you are an economy coming out of years and years of mismanagement. You go usually through a period that's very painful. And as a leader, you have to have a lot of political capital in order to weather that. We're seeing that in Argentina with Macri, who's done a pretty good job of it right now. Rouhani's, I think, struggling slightly. Part of the reason that this actually happened is because he released their budget, and he released parts of their budget that are normally not released, which show the amount of money that is spent to a lot of religious organizations, to the Revolutionary Guard, to this like librarian who was making like $30,000 a month. So he did that because he wanted people to see the mismanagement of the hardliners. Yeah. But I think he misplayed that because instead people were like, Well, dude, you're you're asking you're taking away my subsidy and you're showing me that you're giving thousands and thousands of dollars to these other people. So I so this is as I'm saying this is a bit of a political as well as an economic issue. So this is
3: this is what's interesting about these protests to me, which is that it seems like for the first time in a generation, you have a group of largely young men out in sort of the further provinces of the country rebelling. Against not just the current government, but the entire system, the entire Iranian system, saying this is all rotten. Where uh, we can't afford food, we can't afford basic necessities, and I mean, it is bad. I, I was looking at the stats for like the, the what's happened to Iranian diets oh, over yeah. the last few years. Like uh, the amount of it's stuff like the amount of meat that people are buying has fallen by half. That they can't afford that. The the thing Since, that like, and that's over,
0: and that's my point, right? Is that it's yeah. not just not getting better it is actually getting get worse in, in some
3: respects for these people well, I mean, the thing that the thing that um precipitated these protests initially a lot of people kind of seized on was the price of eggs rose 50 percent because of some weird case of yeah, avian they, flu and expensive they, feed things that in most parts of the world would not cause uh the price of a carton of eggs to jump by half so people have a sense that it, it that their lives are getting worse under this system and you just think back to, to 1979 when you had lots of young men essentially gravitating to the Islamic hardliners because that was their out, and now you see the reverse process. It seems like you have the angry, uh, angry young, um, kind of more rural or small town Iranians um, saying this is screwing us over. And it's, I just I wonder if maybe even though these protests are small, they're significant about the, for the long term trajectory of the country.
2: I am also very curious about what is going to happen because I agree with you that. Even in 2009, you never saw people saying like death to Khomeini," like death to this. That is not something you heard. And and I also think that is something that even Rouhani would not want because Rouhani may be a pragmatist, but he's still very much a part of this theocratic system. My concern is that. These protests could also be used by hardline MPs to block a lot of the reforms that Rouhani is trying to push through that are really going to be necessary to get foreign investment.
3: Can you give me some specific – I'm curious because the only reforms that I think of immediately are the stuff like ending cash payments for food and and, and, and fuel. Like that's something that – Well, um, it's um, more did, just did.
2: reducing subsidies and and decreasing the level at which you have to earn in order to get certain subsidies –
0: why also would, increasing why taxation. The, why would the hardline MPs?
2: They oh they want they want subsidies. They this is how hardliners. This is how fundamentalists. This is how authoritarians often rule is that they are also populists well, and so they. I have another question.
3: So when we talk about like subsidies, right? In Iran, is that just sort of like the equivalent of food stamps? Like no, is, I mean no? it. Also, you have to do like, talking about
2: like you you sometimes.
3: Yeah, who's being subsidized? Like what are we talking about? When we say food so, subsidies, like what are they exactly? So t-
2: sometimes you are actually talking about um cash payments that people are being given. Sometimes you're also talking about the price that people can actually charge for things like fuel. Okay. So you're talking about normalizing prices.
3: See, that makes sense to me saying we have to have a, some semblance of a market economy. Yes. I could see why that's a big deal and you like if that can't happen, it's going to it's going to stunt Iran's growth long term. Cutting people's equivalent of food stamps, on the other hand, seems less essential to me. But that's just, again, as sort of a naive observer.
2: I can potentially agree with yeah. that. I, I, But I do think that there are a lot of reforms that need to be made as well in terms of reducing local content requirements so that if foreign companies come in, they can own more of certain businesses. They don't have to align themselves with Iranian businesses. Those types of things. Also increasing tax collection Mm -hmm. Because that's a big issue in Iran. I've I've seen estimates of something like $20 billion a year are lost through tax evasion and administrative corruption. So these are these are measures that, again, are not popular, but are necessary. And these protests could actually
3: weirdly end up scuttling them.
2: That's my concern. I hope they don't. But
1: that's my concern. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance.
0: What's your number? My number
2: is $740,000. Okay. That is the upbringing fee that a dentist in Taiwan has been told that he has to pay his mother.
3: So... <laughs> <laughs> wait. Wait, this is like some horrible Jewish nightmare
2: come to life. <laughs> like, except it's Taiwan. Okay, wait. Yeah. So... um. This mother she made her sons uh, when they were twenty, sign a contract that said she would pay for their education to become dentists, but they had to pay her sixty percent of their net profits. I like that she specified net, not gross
0: <laughs> and so th- she this is a contract she ended into with adult sons
2: yes they, well, they were twenty years old, so they are they were adults when they signed this, and it was so. The one, the son who is being told that he has to pay this, he has said he already paid her a million, about a million dollars, and he's like, "I signed this when I was twenty, you know, I was just a kid." But and she wants
0: this like in perpetuity. This, well, this sort of tax.
2: well, no, no, it's actually only up until about one point seven million, I believe.
3: Wow. So- <laughs> that's... I, I just think about like every time my mother's been like, I carried you for like, you know, 12 mu- not 12, not 9 months, anyway. <laughs> like, I'm just glad that this kind Jordan of thing... Jordan
0: does- Weisman is, ex- is an expert on the gestation period. Of- <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> not- <laughs> anyway, anyway. i Anyway, I'm like, good on you, woman. I, I, I think you should absolutely get your extra dentist profits. Um, My number is $850,000 which is... Lux Turner, one of these wonderful um, new biotech companies, um, sort of put its finger in the air and decided that the amount it was going to charge for this new gene therapy that it has, in, it has managed to develop to cure a rare form of genetic blindness is, and then they just kind of like rolled the dice and out came $850,000. My favorite thing about this is they've decided to do it They've decided to split it in half and say, "Well, the left eye is four hundred twenty-five thousand, and then the right eye is 425,000. I'm like, "Shouldn't the second eye be less? Shouldn't the first eye be less?" I won't get whatever. <laughs> <one. laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and in any Sorry, case, if it, in
0: any case, if it's a gene therapy, won't like if you fix your genes, won't that fix both eyes? So then not how you can just do the genes on the left eye. Anyway, <laughs> eight hundred fifty thousand. I so. My favorite thing about this is that they haven't figured out how insurers
3: are going to pay for it because typically, if you're like Aetna or someone, um you might be okay paying for an outrageously expensive treatment of some kind because it's going to save money down the line. like you you fix the person, you get you pay for their surgery so that they don't up your your costs in you know years and years from now but if you just pay like 825,000 in one pop that problem that person is probably not going to be your client long enough to justify that cost savings and plus
0: mm-hmm. being blind isn't all that expensive. To I'm, sh- I'm
3: sure it's. I'm sure there are all sorts of uh, yeah. costs associated with that. I'm not an expert on it, but it, I just. I. It's got to raise your health costs in some ways. Um, actually, we. I know we have some optometrists listening to us <laughs> after our <laughs> after yes, our discussion do. of uh, contact lenses, all of whom reached out to us. And at some point, I should probably read some of your letters because you will, had we grave
0: will, concerns. We um, will have a talk. Okay. Well, oh, let's actually anyway, let's just segue very quickly yeah. into contact lenses. Actually, let's not. Yeah, it's just <laughs> never, uh, for enough, nine, Maybe nine.
3: that's a bonus segment at some point, yeah. but. Anyway, um, so insurers are sort of saying, like, well, if we pay for this now, we're probably not going to reap much of the benefit. So there, there's talk about
0: insurers somehow maybe working
3: together with each other to pay these costs over time.
0: It, it's a and, and, and whole new territory. Lux Turner is being quite happy in terms of saying... You want a payment plan? No problem. You know, we, we will be, we we don't need cash on the barrel head here. We will work something out with you because, you know, they want to get a lot of money. Anyway, Jordan, what's your number? Okay, so I have uh,
3: two apologies first before. First, Uh-oh. I should probably say uh, my mother does not actually sound like Kyle's mom from South Park. That's just <laughs> my automatic impression. Uh, but love you, mom. Uh, second, um, a couple of weeks ago, Um, Anna brought a number about Germany's per capita GDP. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to emphasize per capita because it seems that in the course of that conversation, both Felix and I missed the words per capita and thus were completely befuddled um, and just kind of spouted off. um, How can This this doesn't sound... Yeah, basically, Anna told us about how Berlin brought down Germany's per capita GDP because it's so inefficient, which makes total sense if you hear the words per capita. However, we thought she just said GDP. And so we were not listening carefully enough and sounded like jerks as a result many of you emailed us and i want you to make sure that you all realize like we are quite penitent um for yes, that for I, that incident
2: yeah and i should have at the time i just i'll be perfectly honest was just assume that i must have been missing something
3: yeah it was it, it was just a total it, so, it was an omni shambles yeah. i think as ex- uh, okay and so now that i'm done apologizing uh finally my number uh which is 25 dollars um 25 dollars is the Typic. Well, it used to be the suggested admission fee at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, my favorite museum in the world here in New York. Um, however, now going forward it is going to be a required admission fee for people who live outside of New York State, uh, for out-of-towners, um, or and- for anyone who
0: lives in New York State but who doesn't have, you know, documentary ID. proof that they do yeah.
3: so. And so, I mean, I think. Like anybody who loves the Met hates this. Like it just, you know, it it just it seems so counter to the entire spirit of the place that anybody Mm -hmm. could walk in and see some of the world's treasures for literally nothing. And
0: yet, if you look at all of the other great museums in the world, they all have compulsory entrance fees commensurate with this. It's like this is a wonderful thing that the Met has going here. But even the great, you know, socialist paradises of Europe have eye-watering yeah. entrance fees these yeah. days.
3: But it just sucks that they're giving it up, right? Yeah. It was something that made it special, and they're giving it up. And I think um, the thing that really gets to me about this situation is that the Met is just so incompetently run in a lot of ways, just on business level, and the the biggest symbol that to me really is the fact that they lose money on their museum store every year like they still lose millions of dollars selling tchotchkes okay and 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 i I, I
0: i'm gonna push back on this because the mets finances are very complicated and frankly the thing the reason why i don't think this is a good idea is that it won't really fix them the 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 size of the budget is so enormous relative to the increase in admission revenues that they're going to get that it's is way too much but, downside for a small upside but with specific respect to the museum store yes this the the whole reason why the met is in financial difficulties right now is precisely the fact that they had this cash cow for many years which was the museum stores in malls across america and then the retail Retail apocalypse happened and suddenly those um stores went from being cash cows to being actually losing money and that meant that they had to rejigger their whole budget, and it's a problem. And no, you can't take that huge. You know, trying to turn that around is hard, oh. just like it is for many, many other retailers.
3: Okay, I'm going to push back on this though because number one, first off, they <laughs> we'll let you guys go. Like, if you go, I mean, the retail apocalypse is—it's been going on for a while. But they were losing money like in 2010 on their on their museum store. Like this is, um, and I think they also lose money in their restaurants too. I was just looking at their statement. I mean, they're you know, like yes. It sucks that they lost the Met stores across the country. On the other hand, the Museum of Modern Art manages to turn a few million dollars in profit on its what they call their auxiliary services, which um, includes, I'm assuming, well, definitely retail, and I'm assuming also their restaurants. So, their restaurants are way better. It's true, but it can be done. You can, as a museum, and and why am I harping on this? Well. You know, if you're a few million dollars in the red instead of making a few million dollars on this stuff, that's like a six million dollar swing. Right. They're only expected to raise about six to eight million dollars by getting rid of six to twelve million dollars by getting rid of one of the one of the things that makes the Mets special. So with just a slightly better run business. They could make up uh, what they, they... They could make the money that instead they're they're yeah, going to try and milk I, from out-of-towners.
0: I feel like that's in a weird way like the wrong comparison. The real comparison is to say how, what weirdly fucked up priorities do you have when you have to implement a $25 admission fee on people just to see art when at the same time you're taking... 65 yes. million or so of Coke brother money and spending it on fountains, stupid <laughs> fountains, which no one likes. And that's the bit like the, the, the thing which really annoys me and, but which is endemic to many cultural nonprofits is that they are at the mercy of their donors and their boards. And for reasons which we can argue about on the future podcast, but which are just stupid. Um, people like Bill Coke seem to be so much happier funding architecture and stupid fountains than they ever are fun- using the same amount of money to just improve public access by making the admission price lower.
2: Well, that doesn't surprise me, though. That's the same reason why politicians usually want to build a new bridge as opposed to fixing all of the other bridges.
0: Um, yes, or even spend $18 billion on a wall of some description. <laughs> we will see what happens with that. Maybe we'll have a a Trumponomics issue of um, Slate Money at some point in 2018.
3: The wall defies economic reason. <laughs> um,
0: but but it doesn't defy budgeting. They have they have some kind of a number on it now. But I think that's it for um, us this week. Thank you for listening to Slate Money. Write to us on Money at Slate.com. Listen to If Then, which is a weekly podcast which comes out every Wednesday and does for technology what Slate Money does for money. I think is we'll just we'll just leave it there. Thanks to Dan Schrader for producing, and we will talk to you next week on Slate.